News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is being hailed as a significant moment in NHL history. There has never been an openly gay active player in the NHL until now. Everyone's talking about the story, so let's break it down now with our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this is really big news. The Nashville Predators prospect is 19-year-old Luke Prokop, whom we're talking about now. And he has been doing media nonstop since the announcement yesterday, just talking about the freedom he now has to not have to hide, to be able to live his authentic self after coming out. Here he is. Uh, he was on Edmonton Sports Talk Radio Show on CHED talking to Bob Stoffer. Here he is talking now about coming out to his family. My sister was the first person I told. It was when our season ended because of COVID. I came back from Calgary and you know, I just kind of got into into a place in my life where I was okay and comfortable talking about my sexuality. And I just started having those conversations with my family. So, you know, I started with my mom, or started with my sister, sorry, then my mom. And then obviously, you know, it was, if I felt more of a difficult conversation having it with my dad and my brother, just because I played with Josh for two years in, in Calgary and he knows what the what the hockey dynamic is like and then my father i mean he's an a-type personality so i didn't really know how he would take it but they've been so great and so supportive and um you know they want they want they just want me to be happy and you know uh this is a step in the right direction for sure that is so nice to hear it really is. It's really wonderful. He said that last season he was really worried about who knew because he had told some of his teammates and then he just had to worry about whether any of them had shared his news without him knowing and that kind of thing getting around and him not being in control of that story. He said now that he's uh, just far more confident and excited to focus on the game. He also calls this a new chapter. I mean, I think today is kind of the start of an, almost a new life for me. You know, I had to kind of hide who I was, especially with hockey for the past four or five years, knowing, you know, who I truly was and not being able to be who I am now. It's, it's, it's a real relief. And, you know, I can't wait to see how I'm, how I play next year and kind of my skates moving forward, just being able to kind of let go and be myself and not have to worry about who knows or who doesn't when I'm in the gym or arena and just focus on, you know, getting better on the ice. What just what a relief it must be for him. And it has been wonderful to see the reaction to this. In fact, I guess he started telling people like a couple months ago, Raji, and he got a call from the general manager, David Paul of the Nashville Predators, uh, which is the NHL team that he will eventually play for. And they told him, listen, we support you. Whatever you need, we are here for you. And I thought, yeah, that's great. Yeah, he said he was really uplifted by that. So the impact is huge. But Simi, there's also the other side of this, which is that there will be homophobic fans. So what he has done by coming out is brave. And some people think that being openly gay is no longer a big deal. It's not true. It is a big deal. It was hugely brave of him. There will be important conversations around the dinner table or more likely in the living room and around TV screens um, because of him coming out. There will be people, uh, often the younger generations, teaching uh, dad's generation or grandpa uh, that that it's time to move forward. And, yeah. there, you know, he's also going to face some 
um, judgment from some fans. Uh, but yes, you're right. Right now, huge amount of support is coming his way. And uh, this is just huge. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel proud of him. I, I know. Just- I, I saw Gary Bettman, who, you know, Gary Bettman takes a lot of flack from a lot of people. Yes. But I saw that he had also personally phoned Luke Prokop and told him, whatever you need, we fully, you know, support you 110%, which is great. And I read his piece, I read Luke's piece in The Athletic too. And I I do suggest that for a lot of people, if you have a subscription, check it out, where he talked about how, you know what, he knows that, you know, he may not have a long career in the NHL. He said, I may only ever play one game, two games, three games in the NHL. But if he would, however many he played, he said he wanted to make sure he played as his authentic self. Yeah. I love that. And imagine how important that is for children to see. We know half of hockey fans are are young ones, right? They're the most passionate ones. Yeah. And they're looking up to him right now and watching him do something really brave. So just really exciting. Yeah, I'd like to see that too. And I know that there's also been that comment from a lot of people being like, wouldn't it be nice if this wasn't a big deal? Yeah, sure. But we're getting there, right? These are the baby steps we have to take to get there. We are, and he's a pioneer and having come out, but we know obviously that there have been other NHL players who are gay and they had to hide it. And imagine having to have to hide who you are when you're in the public eye for that long, just what a burden that would have been for so many before him. In his um, Instagram post, he made sure that he did a shout out to everyone who has come before him in athletics and has uh, come out. So he, he realizes that he's, this is part of a longer legacy. Yeah. And you know what? It's not the first time, but in the NFL that happened, there was a player in the yeah. NFL who about a month ago did the same thing. So I think this is a definite sign that things are changing because up until this, this year, you would say that any other player who had come out and said, look at, I am gay, they were no longer kind of active players, or maybe they were trying to break into the league, but nobody actually actively in the league saying this. So yeah, you know what, good for him. And, and now I'm sure he hopes that at some point, people stop thinking about it and just concentrate on his play on the ice. Yeah, that's the hope. And I'm sure that is what's to come next. You just mentioned the hopeful uh, domino effect that these kind of announcements, people coming out publicly can have, and it's real. So uh, here's hoping that other players also feel inspired to uh, come out if they are gay. Yeah. Do you think then this will prompt a lot of conversations? Or is this going to be one of those things where the that generation, that I think Luke's generation, when you think about it, all the hockey players of that age, I mean, they grew up where this is not a big deal, right? Gay marriage was legal. It happens. It's just a completely different dynamic than the previous generation. Simi, it's still hard. I have a, a young nephew. He's only 10 years old, and he's a very serious hockey player already. He's already playing with people that are older than him. And my brother has told me about some of the things that he's overheard in the locker room, and they have uh. just blown him away. Like, how do... 10-year-olds already know about homophobia and why are they participating in it? Uh, Obviously not my nephew, but um, this has made me realize, yeah, exactly, right? So this is why I know that what Luke Prokop did by coming out publicly in the NHL is is huge and super brave. It took so much courage to do it because we know that still a lot of people are not on board with the fact that we all deserve to live our best lives. 
Well, we wish him the best. I think it's going to go very, very well for him if that's any indication. I know there's lots of discussion about this. On another note here, Roger, before I let you go, just want to let everybody know that Jeff Bezos has just taken off into space. So um, <laughs> the rocket is on its way. But have you been following the story of Wally Funk, which is the one that I keep talking about today? Oh, a little bit, yes. Oh, fantastic. So 82-year-old Wally Funk has just become the oldest person to ever go into space with Jeff Bezos, uh, along with his brother, I think, is the other person on on board. And then the 18-year-old Dutch teen, whose, I guess, dad had bought the ticket and then couldn't go for some reason, so his son is going. But uh, they just made history and they rocketed off into space. So, yeah, I think private space... Uh, exploration is another topic for us to talk about one day, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, this is this one might divide us too because <laughs> I, I love space. I love the idea of space, Simi. I'm not sure if we should all be racing to get there. Ooh, interesting. All right, we'll have to save that for another time. Raji, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Not frustrating at all. Uh, the fact is, the decisions that every country makes is in regards to its own protection of its own citizens. And from the very beginning, uh, we've put measures in that were not reciprocated by the United States. You can still fly down to Florida unvaccinated in the middle of the pandemic. That is Prime Minister Trudeau speaking with Global Toronto's Farah Nasser in a one-on-one interview. He was asked about whether or not there was any frustration regarding the United States not kind of reciprocating for not allowing vaccinated Canadians to cross the border for non-essential travel, considering that we made that decision starting August 9th, U.S. citizens, permanent residents who are fully vaccinated can come to Canada. And his response, not frustrating at all. But so many other things to talk to him about, right? What about the election? What else is going on? Well, we'll talk more to Farah Nasser about that right now. Good morning, Farah. Good morning, Simi. Now tell me about this interview. First of all, did he tell you when the election is coming? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, as if you were doing this interview, that would be the first question as well. So we definitely asked him that right off the bat. Uh, and we said, you know, you seem to be in campaign mode. You're you're going to all these cities, especially these writings that you'd really want for, for a majority. And, you know, he said, no, this is what we do in the summer as politicians. We go meet our constituents. So uh, I even pressed him further saying, you know, are you not planning for an election? And he said in a minority government, you know, we're always we're always ready in case anything happens. But, you know, in the in the tone of the conversation, this was certainly someone who is on message track, who is ready. Um, you know, I joked like while we were all honing our pandemic hobbies, he was likely preparing because he seemed very, very well prepared and on message for this interview. Yes, exactly. So what is the message that you think that they're trying to put out there? Well, we talked a lot about the cultural reckoning in this interview, right? We talked about the, um, you know, the the indigenous, the the uh, re- residential schools, the discovery, how that's been a really moment of reckoning we talked about Islamophobia. We also spoke about the crisis in the military. So, you know, I think his message is what it's always been. You know, we're the we're the party that uh, really sees everybody and that we we're the party that cares. We're the party that's having a national summit tomorrow on Islamophobia to try to address this. Um, of course, you know, I, I press him on a lot of these tough questions. Like you, you say one thing, and this is what we found uh, when we were preparing for this interview from both Muslim communities and both indigenous leaders we spoke to um, that, you know, the prime minister, in their view, you know, is easy. To, he says these things, but when it comes to the action, you know, fighting residential school survivors in court, as the federal government is doing, or you know, um, not stepping in to stop Bill Twenty One in Quebec, 
you know, as well. These kind of things, it's the action that the people are more concerned about. Okay. So what struck you is, is interesting? I think um, the one thing that was really the first direct time, the first direct thing that he said in terms of a criminal investigation uh, when it comes to residential schools was really interesting to me. So, you know, I said, you know, we have these potential crime scenes in multiple provinces. Um, you know, we have we have testimony, years of testimony. I mean, even before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report came out, they, they went through years of five years of testimony of people who were in those schools. Yet no one, virtually no one has been held criminally responsible. And if he would support a, uh, you know, a criminal investigation, um, which he kind of he hasn't really committed to or anything, but he said he absolutely would support it. He would support anything that the indigenous mm-hmm. communities ask for. And the other part was the really tense moments in the conversation when we talked about the crisis, the sexual misconduct crisis in the in the Canadian military. Ooh, I look forward to hearing about that. Where can we see more of this, Farah? Uh, that's going to be on Global National tonight. Uh, we will also have it on uh, globalnews.ca. All right, sounds good. I look forward to it. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. To be honest, I thought it was kind of going to be more than what it was, but we've been hearing a lot about it this morning. Amazon, well, former Amazon CEO, but Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his civilian crewmates are now back safely on Earth. They went up into space aboard his Blue Origin spacecraft and then came back down. They were in flight for 11 minutes. So what is so significant about this? Joining us now is Dave Scott, host of Spaced Out Radio. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, it's great for you to be here. I love having you here because I want to talk about this. So what was so significant about this today? Well, the big thing is we see the battle of the billionaires continuing between Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and of course, Elon Musk in trying to privatize and and trying to figure out how they can eventually monetize space travel and space tourism. And today's flight was another successful test to that because what we are seeing is another form of spaceship from a private organization in Bezos's uh, new company, Blue Origin, go up and successfully be able to land. Even though the flight was only 11 minutes, what we are seeing is a giant step towards that privatization where more citizens, maybe in the future, within the next three to five years, will be able to go up. You know, unfortunately, they got to figure out how to bring those costs down. So, us regulars could be able to maybe enjoy space flight every now and again, but it was a big step for going right. forward towards privatization. Right. It's more, it is, as you say, about this space tourism, isn't it? Because other than that, a lot of what they've done has been done by NASA, by other space agencies, and NASA certainly makes money off a lot of the things that they have discovered already. Well, I mean, NASA's not in the business about making money. They're in the business about science and hopefully chasing aliens, which is what we're hoping, at least at least on my radio show. However, that's not being really said of what they're doing. This is a whole new gamut of what we are seeing regarding the space race for private funding. Uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy around it because a lot of people feel that these billionaires are playing with money that could be used for food, for schools, for fixing roads and everything like that, and that it's just a major ego trip. But these gentlemen, I believe, are seeing the future of what is happening with this planet. We're not treating this planet very well. Eventually, we are going to have too many people here where we are going to have to expand, whether it's to Mars, whether it's to the moon. And that's what we're really planning for. And NASA gets off free because... They're not having to 
foot the bill for this, these billionaires who are seeing the potential of multi-billions of dollars going into space tourism in the future is what they are looking at as their companies look to grow towards the future as well. Right. How long into the future, though, is that? Because here they went up, they came down 11 minutes. This is stuff that NASA was doing decades ago. It's going to be a pretty big leap for them to get to space tourism and getting even farther. Well, this is where Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos are really behind the ball compared to Elon Musk, who is saying that within the next five years, he wants to launch the first rockets to and land people on Mars. Now, to get to Mars, you're still 11 months away by today's human technology, especially using rocket-propelled spacecraft. Now, if they were able to figure out hypersonic speed, much like uh, some of the militaries in the world, and use that, it would cut down the distancing just fine, but that costs a lot of expense. And when you're digging out of your own pocket, rockets are the way to go rather than hypersonic speed. Okay, so you're saying this is just the beginning. This is completely just the beginning of what we are going to see, but we have to keep an eye on it. You know, going back to the space shuttle program, which you grew up on and what I grew up on, that's only going up 300 kilometers into the sky where we see the International Space Station flying over. We have to be able to figure out what's going to happen above the Kuiper Belt. Can we get back to the moon? Can we get up to Mars? And that's going to take a lot more money and a lot more ingenuity. All right. Interesting to watch. Dave, thank you so much for your time. Take care, Simi. That's Dave Scott, the host of Spaced Out Radio, talking about this morning's very big deal. It is that Jeff Bezos, his civilian crewmates, went up into space. They were up in the air for 11 minutes and then came back down aboard his Blue Origin spacecraft. Uh, They launched from the facility in West Texas at about 6 a.m. And that comes nine days after Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson flew to about 85 kilometers up into the atmosphere aboard a rocket ship that he also helped fund. But as Dave pointed out, very different from what Elon Musk is doing here. I mean, Branson and Bezos, they're looking at space tourism, right? having people being able to buy a ticket to go into space. Uh, That's uh, not exactly what SpaceX is all about. They're already making money taking payloads up into space for private companies. So yeah, it is a fascinating time in the space race. Uh, Lots more to come on that story today. Oh, I am sure. This is Mornings with Simi. It started yesterday afternoon, and within a few hours, you had more than 200 properties within the Asoyas Indian Band that have been ordered to either evacuate immediately or be on alert. That is a fast-moving new wildfire that is a pretty big concern there. Broke out around around 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon. So we thought, let's get an update now on the situation. Joining us now is Eric Thompson, Information Officer uh, for the RDOS Operations Center. Eric, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Good morning. What do we know about the size of the fire this morning? Well, according to BC Wildfire's website, which most people are checking, uh, the latest size is approximately 700 hectares. Certainly, BC Wildfire will be speaking to the wildfire itself today, and we're looking forward to an update on that. But yes, this fire did grow very rapidly yesterday. Yeah, how much of a concern has that been? Were you able to you know, get people to safety? Yes, certainly. And the concern is that it's moving so quickly and getting information out to people and making sure that everyone is safe is the key. Uh, All of the first responders on the ground did an excellent job. And with uh, the evacuation order that the RDOS put in place, the Regional District of Okanagan and Similkameen, now that was for Area C, uh, there were approximately 60 properties and those people had to all be notified. So uh, the search and rescue crews joined the RCMP to 
uh, expedite that operation. And from what I understand, it, it went well. Uh, and then we put out the paperwork as well and, and the reminders through the different channels to let people know they need to leave the properties. Uh, not everyone chooses to leave during an evacuation order, but it certainly is recommended, especially, uh, obviously, if you have children, it's a different story. But um, it, it's it's a challenging situation when it moves that quickly and people weren't necessarily expecting it. Yeah, what can you do then? If someone chooses not to leave, what is the advice that you have for them? Well, that becomes an issue then for the RCMP, and, and there is legislation around that. And um, if someone is, if they're an adult and they decide not to leave, you, you can't ask them to leave if they don't want to. Uh, but should they leave their property to go get groceries or that type of thing, they wouldn't be um, able to come back to their property due to uh, the restrictions on the evacuation order. Uh, certainly not an ideal situation, but as we've seen in the last while and, and over the last few years, these evacuation orders can be really troubling and stressful for people. So that's why it's always important to have a plan in place, know what to do if your property is either, either under an evacuation alert or an order. Uh, that takes a lot of the stress away if you have a plan in place, especially if you have animals and that type of thing, knowing what to do, when you can get them out, where to take them, what to do with your property, that kind of thing. And just on a personal note, having a grab-and-go kit available with the important items that you're going to need is, is really important as well. Yeah, I've heard that from other organizations too, that grab-and-go kit by the front door, right? Be able to grab it and get the heck out if you need to. So do we have any idea how this got started? No idea. Uh, and I, again, I can't speak to the wildfire itself, but it's uh, that's an issue for BC Wildfire, but I, I'm in Summerland currently, uh, just north of uh, Penticton, about 10-minute drive north of Penticton. And uh, the, the fire yesterday was very strange because it happened so quickly and grew so fast that all of a sudden you just saw black in the sky. There was smoke, there was ash. We don't often see a lot of ash. And uh, it was just a, a very bizarre situation how it grew quickly and, and just became, you know, so intense so fast. Yeah, I guess that's why you see the ash, right? You don't see it very often, but it does sound like it just came up so, so quickly. So what yeah. are you watching for today then, Eric? What what's what are you going to be doing? Well, the key for the RDOS today is to work with the Town of Oliver, uh, Soyuz Indian Band, and BC Wildfire and other agencies to make sure that um, everyone who needs assistance is getting the assistance, making sure, and that includes uh, right across the board, making sure that we can work with other local governments to help them if we can. We have, uh, as you know, about uh, approximately 100 properties under an evacuation alert. Now, an alert can change to an order at any time. Uh, It's really hard to say, but those people who are under evacuation alert are always looking for information. So the job of local government is to make sure they get that. Town of Oliver has about 20 properties on alert, and uh, and then you mentioned OIB as well, with about 200 properties under alert and order. The key for people to be aware of is there is smoke in the area. Um, at the moment, um, it's not as heavy as it was yesterday, to say the least, and that's due to the wind condition, I believe. And the key is to avoid that operational area. So anyone who's out on a Soyuz lake or planning to go out on the lake really needs to be aware that skimmers and helicopters do need a wide berth. So if you can avoid the lake altogether, that's ideal, but certainly avoiding that operational area is incredibly important. And I think some people believe that maybe the planes don't need that much space, but they certainly do for safety. Uh, And then the other issue, of course, is there is a limited availability of hotel rooms and other accommodation in the area. So um, there are some challenges there if you're just coming into the area and you haven't booked anything. Um, you want to plan ahead and, and just make a call to the local tourism operators, local government, if you need to, just to find out what the situation is on the ground. Right, because it was already pretty busy throughout that area at this time of year, isn't it, tourism-wise? 
Certainly, very busy. It's a very popular area. Um, it, it can be unpredictable anywhere you go, especially along the western part of North America with wildfires and other issues. Uh, but again, I think situationally aware is important for visitors and locals just to know what's going on in the area, know where you can get the information, know how you can be prepared uh, for yourself. And having an out-of-town contact is also important, especially if, if there's an issue with power or anything like that. It's always good to have somebody outside of the area who you can touch base right. with so family can keep in touch. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for the update, Eric, and best of luck today. Thank you so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. American citizens and permanent residents who want to come to Canada for non-essential reasons and are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 will be allowed to do so starting on August 9th. That was the big announcement from the federal government yesterday. And in fact, we're even saying that fully vaccinated travellers from other countries will be allowed to come to Canada as of September the 7th. So federal officials responded right after weeks of, of uh, lobbying and from American lawmakers, we should add here too, and industry lobby groups. But yet we haven't seen the same reciprocal offer made about border openings from the United States. So we'll have to see about that. But what kind of an impact is this going to have here? Joining us now is Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning, Simi. So what kind of an impact do you think this is going to have? Is this significant for local businesses? Well, I have a huge smile on my face uh, yesterday and today. This is really, really welcome news. Very, very pleased to see a science-based approach, which was outlined by the expert panel. You know, what this means is that friends and families can finally be reunited. And it means a boost to our economy for business travel. We haven't talked a lot about business travel and the impact on business travel, but this is hugely significant because business travel supports trade, it supports investment and talent attraction. So it's critical to our economy. Do you think businesses are going to jump right back into it? Because it was all this talk during the pandemic, right? That, oh, things are going to change forever and people aren't going to travel as much for business anymore. Well, let me put this into context. So Vancouver lost $10 billion from our visitor economy in 2020 alone. So the visitor economy really is a huge economic driver for urban centres like Vancouver, Toronto and Montreal. And it's driven by business travel, including large scale events like conventions and conferences and business meetings. And so what's been happening is that we know that all events were cancelled in 2020. And then most, if not all, were cancelled, are being cancelled in 2021. But as event planners are doing their work for 2022, they were understanding that you know, that Canada was still closed. So they were starting to look at other jurisdictions and we were starting to lose out on some of those really important events for 2022. So when you put that all together, I mean, $10 billion alone for 2020 is enormous. It's an impact on people's lives, their livelihoods, it's jobs. So it's really significant. This is a huge announcement yesterday. Right. Does it also remind businesses though, they're already dealing with a labor shortage, which I'm sure you're hearing a lot about. It is a really big problem, and I think there's a number of factors at play here. Uh, Several people who were working in industries like tourism and travel moved on to do other things or took a break and stepped back and looked after their families or their friends or a number of things. And so it is taking a long time to get those people back into the industry, and some of them may never come back. So there are significant crunches. I know I've heard this from just about everybody who works in travel and tourism, that it's really hard to find people to work. So, you know, this is going to be a problem. And if if the gates are opening up and people are starting to come rushing back in in August and September and beyond, there is a concern that we're not going to be able to have the people there to serve them for hotels and restaurants and tourist attractions. It's a significant problem. 
Right. So then how are we going to deal with that? Is this what businesses are preparing for in the next few weeks? Businesses are ramping up. I mean, honestly, Simi, people, businesses have been waiting months to get this news. And so there's a lot of excitement and preparation. And it's been underway for some time in anticipation of this move. But I think that we need to also be realistic that people need to be patient as we're all getting back on track. It doesn't, we don't return to normal right away. And so we're hoping that, you know, as the gates open, that people will come back in and that we'll have more people coming back to the industries that were impacted so much. And it's really important, too, that as we look, you know, we've got some of the best vaccination rates in the world and we're leading and we're doing great. But we need governments from around the world to understand the importance of interoperability around that kind of documentation and the expectations for travelers. So one of the last pieces that we are still really advocating for is for jurisdictions really to understand the interconnectedness of those documents and the travel, um, the, the certificates that are going to be necessary and to make sure that there's some consistency right across jurisdictions. So is that something you're advocating for? Absolutely. We have been for some time. Uh, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade is part of the Travel and Tourism Roundtable. It's a group that meets uh, nationally several times uh, throughout the pandemic. We meet regularly, and this is one of the things that we're talking about. It's also an initiative that we have been speaking and working with our colleagues in Toronto and Montreal. It's really important around the world. There's probably about 40 different platforms or or even more that are being considered. And so it's something that I know that the federal government is working on and just so that there is some consistency and some understanding of what the expectations are going to be. All right, more to come. Bridget, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You're probably going to find out about it anyway. So here's a little preemptive truth-telling. There's no happy ending. One, two, three, four. Chef Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. The renowned chef and best-selling author of Kitchen Confidential. All the TV chefs are so cuddly and adorable, you know, maybe I'm the antidote or something. Has a new program, Parts Unknown. One minute I was standing next to a deep fryer, and the next I was watching the sunset over the Sahara. What am I doing here? That right there, the trailer for Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. It is a new, hugely anticipated documentary about the late celebrity chef. He's coming under fire in its first week out in theaters. So why? We're going to find out right now with Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I don't know anyone who is not a fan of Anthony Bourdain. He's just like, un- he is unlike anyone that we've ever seen in the cooking show realm. For those who don't know him, his lasting legacy was that he really linked food and culture like nobody else. He did it in his books. He did it in his TV series. And so when he passed in 2018 at the age of 61 from having taken his own life, the world was shook. Like I actually remember where I was at the time and anyone I knew who cooked or worked in a restaurant or, or traveled because of their love of food was in mourning at that time. I'm sure you remember like the internet was just flooded with personal stories about him. Well, finally, a new documentary has come out about him. It's called Roadrunner. It broke box office records for a pandemic era movie uh, this week, having just come out. Well, let's talk about the art of documentary filmmaking for a second before we dive into the controversy, because unlike fiction, docs are all about truth telling, right? Mm -hmm. It claims to be 
factual, offer some insight or, or context in a way that news can't do. It's lengthy. Well, the other side of documentaries, and this is where they get criticized, is that they can manipulate viewers. And that happens big time in this Bourdain doc because it's been discovered that the doc used AI or artificial intelligence to voice Anthony Bourdain for legitimately not a very long time. It's 45 seconds. Um, and it's basically an email that Bourdain wrote to his friend. And I'm guessing in confidence, not expecting that it would get a voiced over in a movie after he died. Um, but they use uh, 45 seconds uh, of AI digitally processing his voice um, to give voice to some of the words that he'd written to his friend in the email about happiness. And his widow says very clearly that she does not give permission for the, she never gave permission for the doc to do this and that she can't imagine that Tony, as she called him, uh, would have approved of it either. It's kind of weird. This is the thing I had been grappling with this because obviously I'm, I love Anthony Bourdain as well. My, my most cherished cookbook that I have out of all the cookbooks that I have is the one that he signed for me. I used to host a cooking show, it feels like, in another lifetime. And um, he was one. Of, he was my favorite guest of all time. Everybody's favorite guest on the show. The women, the men, everybody loved having him on the show. Mm-hmm. And that was when he had Kitchen Confidential had just recently kind of come out. He was still working at Les All, which is what the cookbook was from. Um, and it's just, it, he's, it was an amazing person. So I was very excited to see this documentary. And then I heard, well, this is kind of weird. Yeah, especially I also had the chance to meet him a couple of times. And the irony in all of this is that Bourdain was known to be himself at all times. Yeah. And now in his death, he's being digitally produced to say something that he was not recorded saying in real life. Like, how is that ethical, Simi? I don't know. If I, mean, he, I don't think he would like it. I don't think he would like it. He was kind of a straight up, straight shooter kind of a person, yeah. right? Totally. Imagine if you wrote me something in an email, re, you know, remaining private in an email. You, that's your intention. And then, boom, I think it's okay to give it a Simi Sarah AI voice. And, yeah, and I'm just going to go on the record right now as saying I disapprove. <laughs> <laughs> I, I disapprove of that. So th- it's tainting, I think, um, the the whole idea of this, even though there was a lot of interesting things that they explored in the documentary, but now these filmmakers are really having to justify why they thought this was a good idea. Absolutely. The worst part is that the controversy takes away from Anthony Bourdain's story because this was the most anticipated doc of the year and one of the most anticipated films, period, of the year. But one thing that it has raised is to what extent can we start to use technology to improve modern visual storytelling? Like if we have these tools at our disposal, shouldn't we use them sometimes? That's what a lot of people, a lot of documentary filmmakers are asking Mm. now. And I think what they could have done is if they felt it was essential for the storytelling to, you know, reproduce his voice, um, which I definitely think has ethical issues, then they should have put up a disclaimer. And yes, yes, would the disclaimer take away from the storytelling? It would. Right. But But, that's the price you've got to pay. Exactly. I find it fascinating, too, that a lot of celebrities now, well-known people, are actually writing this into their estate, right? Into their wills about how they would expect their voice, their image, their likeness to be used with artificial intelligence. If they don't want to do it, they absolutely have the ability to say that. But I don't think it's something that he ever imagined, you know, would happen to him. So fascinating. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal talking about the Anthony Bourdain documentary generating lots of controversy for using AI to recreate his voice. 
and read out an email that he had sent to a friend. It's called Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. 